one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 428 for the week of Monday, September 10th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Yep, fresh from the uh, ravages of a lousy virus. How you doing there, Sawyer? I'm doing great, thanks. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. Got a lot of interesting stuff going on lately. I'm looking forward to what we've got, especially you guys. (laughs) (laughs) All of us, we got a lot of great stories, and let's get right into it. All right, and the first story, indeed, that we will start things off with is Space Shuttle News, something that we don't have much of lately, so that's why we're putting it front and center. And that is the Space Shuttle Endeavor is getting ready for its final journey. And the final journey of any space shuttle aboard a Boeing 747, the NASA's shuttle carrier aircraft. Space Shuttle Endeavour will be making a grand tour across the southern United States, traveling from Florida's Kennedy Space Center all the way to Los Angeles International Airport in Los Angeles, California, before its eventual delivery to the California Science Center. Now, they've laid out a pretty cool path for it. It will depart at sunrise on September 17th, starting over Florida and then over NASA's Stennis Space Center in Mississippi, as well as its Michoud Assembly Facility in New Orleans. It'll fly over Houston, Clear Lake, and Galveston, Texas, and will land at Ellington Field near Johnson Space Center, and that will stay through the 18th. Then on the 19th, the shuttle will head towards Biggs Army Airfield in El Paso, and then we'll do some low flyovers over White Sands, one of the shuttle landing sites. And then it will land about midday at Dryden and Edwards Air Force Base in the Mojave Desert. And then finally, on September 20th, it will perform some low flyovers over NASA's Ames Research Center in Moffett Field, California. And then it begins its tour throughout almost all of California, flying over San Francisco, Sacramento, and perhaps some other major California cities before low-level flyover over Los Angeles, and then an expected landing at LAX at about 11 a.m. local time. Now, they have not announced any of the landmarks they will be flying over, and all this, I should note, is according to the L.A. Times. That's a heck of a way to go for the final flight, huh? It's an interesting way you're putting it, Sorry, It is the final flight. It's the last time an orbiter really is going to be airborne. Uh, Atlantis just has a nice walk down the street, if you will, uh, to its uh, final area where it's going to be displayed at the Kennedy Space Center. But, uh, yeah, they want to make sure, since this is the last time, really, uh, an orbiter is going to be flying from coast to coast, essentially, that uh, it gets a lot of, uh, a lot of attention and, and enough people can come out to, uh, to see her. It's interesting, too, that she's going to be stopping by in Texas over there uh, at Ellington Air Force Base and will also be uh, flying over over Clear Lake. Um, a little, not, again, some melancholy stuff there, but uh, um, all in all, not a bad path for uh, for a uh, for a swan song flight. It, it'll it, it should be exciting for everybody along the uh, along the line. I know uh, we were all excited here on the East Coast when we saw had a chance not to see one, but uh, two orbiters airborne, uh, one shuttle Discovery coming in from Florida through uh, uh, Washington, D.C., and, of course, Shuttle Enterprise departing D.C. for, uh, for New York. So, um, again, this is, this is quite, a, quite a route, and uh, it should be exciting for the people out on the West Coast, and be kind of neat to see what the photographs of this thing is going to be. Hopefully, she'll fly over the, 
the Golden Gate, and, and uh, it should be kind of picturesque. One of the really cool things, I talked recently to a gentleman in the Washington, D.C. area, and he reflected on seeing Discovery uh, fly over D.C. en route to the Smithsonian, landing at Dulles, and he said it was quite thrilling, that it was something that really got a lot of attention. And I appreciated uh, the comment because a lot of the people that we talk to are definitely interested and highly enthusiastic about this. And this is somebody that's outside the the normal group of people that uh, looks forward to everything that, that happens with the space program. And uh, it got, their, got his attention. Of course, we knew that. We heard that. But uh, this is something exciting coming up for a lot of folks. And the thing that I find especially uh, unique and, and special about all this, <laughs> I'm using the same word repeatedly, <laughs> but I find it of great value that they're taking the flybys past the places that supported so much of the work in the shuttle program, namely Stennis, Michoud, certainly Houston, and uh, you know that the stoppers, stopovers they have planned. Uh, a lot of folks are going to get a chance to to see it, to see it on top of the shuttle carrier aircraft, and that is such a unique sight. Golly, <laughs> I'm I'm kicking myself to uh, to be missing Endeavor's departure out of Kennedy this time, but I will not be there. But uh, it's going to be exciting nonetheless. Yeah, Mark, I have to have to agree with you there. There's nothing more exciting than seeing that thing. I mean, we uh, we here in the New York area got to see uh, Enterprise fly by some landmark buildings. You know, the uh, you know the Empire State Building, obviously, and of course the uh, uh, One World Trade, which is currently under under construction. But uh, also the Statue of Liberty, and and what was really neat is here I was standing, and when I saw that, uh, I was standing in Liberty State Park, a place that I used to play in as a little little kid. So it was kind of you know, bringing, you know, kind of some, some things are uh, full circle. But, uh, uh, again, I think it's going to be really, really great for for the people to, uh, everybody to get out there and see an op- get this opportunity to see this bird. Hey, Mark, you've, you've got a interesting little aside, too, about the environmental impact of all this. Yeah, and this is something that, for me, is uh, kind of a personal, uh, something I relate to on a personal level. For about 12 probably almost 13 years, I lived in Tallahassee, Florida. And Tallahassee is a community, medium-sized town. The uh, tallest building is the Capitol Building downtown. It's 22 stories high. And I remember going up there, my wife and I, and sometimes with family or, or people that would visit, and we'd go up and we wanted to show them our city. And the thing that was so unique is you get up to the top and you get to the, uh, the overlook, uh, windows and whatnot, and you look out and you see trees. You don't see much of the downtown beyond about five or six blocks. You look at miles and miles of trees, and knowing the town and knowing how the community spreads out, and that there's a lot of houses, a lot of businesses, and all you're seeing is a few main roads and a lot of trees. Well, this is what I'm going to bring up about Endeavor. When Endeavor gets to L.A. on its way out to the California Science Center, I saw an article in the L.A. Times that referred to the fact that there's some tree removal that has to take place. And we've heard this, that there would be power poles and traffic lights would have to be temporarily removed and a lot of of adjustments to get that that big spacecraft, you know, down the road to where its its final home is going to be. Well... One of the things that has upset some people in the communities on that planned route is that there's some 400 trees. And, of course, the uh, L.A. Times says 400 trees will be chopped down to make room for the behemoth. And, excuse me, this is a beautiful spaceship. This isn't a behemoth. And it's 400 trees that are going to be replaced by double that number. And some of these trees have caused problems in that, uh, as for instance, at the end of the article, uh, individuals quoted as saying, the move of the shuttle allows the city to be part of this national endeavor, said Sabrina Barnes, Inglewood's Director of Parks, Recreation, and Library Services. And it gives us the chance to address problematic trees that have eroded the landscape. Well, back to my Tallahassee story. One of the things that uh, Tallahassee taught uh, the community about trees was when a very minor hurricane cruised through town, 
these trees shed limbs, they fell over, they knocked down major uh, power poles. I'm talking the big ones, the couple hundred thousand volt power feeders. Uh, the community was knocked on its tail for varying periods of time, from, from three days to, to a week and a half, two weeks, just before Thanksgiving back in the 80s. And um, at that point, people started saying, well, gee, maybe we should put power lines underground because the thing that stood out was that that community loves the trees. They love the canopy roads. And it's beautiful. There's nothing like it. But there has to be some give and take. And for Endeavor to go to the California Science Center, uh, of course, here I am. I'm in Florida. I've not seen L.A. in the area that they're talking about. And maybe if it was my neighborhood, my backyard, maybe I'd be bothered. But uh, for the prize that they're going to get with a shuttle, I would say don't sweat a few trees. They will grow. Yeah, Mark, a good reminder, too, that the trees are indeed a renewable resource. And the California Science Museum is going ahead and replanting for every tree they take down. Um, they are planting two more. And again, Mark, if, if, I'm, if I recall exactly, some of these trees were nuisance trees, so to speak, that they were just ripping up the sidewalk in some areas. So, you know, again, is there it's a, I think it's going to be a win win for the city but, and for the cities involved. Because the cities get to go ahead and say, okay, you could plant these things here. And they say where, if, if I recall exactly, um, where these trees can be planted rather than going ahead and putting them back exactly where they were, right? Well, here's something I, I just read in this article. One of, the, uh, one of the residents said, it will be beyond my lifetime before the trees will be tall like this again. And I'm sympathetic to that. Someone else refers to the young wiry trees that will provide little shade in comparison to the mature magnolias that line the Crenshaw Corridor. And others are concerned that the bare streets will depreciate property values. You know, I, I understand and I'm sorry, I wish there was a better way. And I think if there was a better way that they would have uh, they would have chosen it. But it certainly beats taking interstates apart, <laughs> um, removing highways for, for six months and a year so that you can use underpasses that, that are not accessible with the, the, the shuttle and the size that it is. It's just one of those things. Yes, everything has a trade-off, but uh, again, not a bad. I, I don't think it's a bad deal. It looks like the the shuttle huggers will prevail over the tree huggers this time. <laughs> I, I think so too, and I think that that's a great comparison there. I mean, coming from a Tree City USA, I can understand that they're both a pleasure and a burden, but you're getting a space shuttle. Houston right now would probably not be too happy if they hear you guys complaining about trees if they complained about new york get you know complaining that it was a fake shuttle which again both are interesting and somewhat valid arguments but at the same time you're both getting space shuttles so that's pretty darn cool enough Alrighty then so with that now we move on to gene and gene you have a very interesting commercial story for us right yeah, well, this this is uh, going into um, our little story uh, last week concerning the uh, the commercial crew picks that uh, that NASA had uh, had released. Um, well, uh, this this past uh, week, NASA had released a uh, paper indicating what their thoughts were with relationship to the uh, Commercial Crew Integrated Capability, or CCI CAP Awards, which total about uh, $1.1 billion. I'm looking at a Space News article dated uh, Friday, September 7th, uh, which sort of outlines the, reason, the reasoning here. Um, one of the reasons why uh, the Dream Chaser, if you recall, kind of like got third... Uh, billing in the whole thing. I believe they only uh, only received a $212.5 million award was that I believe, Sawyer, and, and, and you could check me on this one, um, I believe that uh, uh, Bill Gerstenmeier, who's uh, uh, NASA's Associate Administrator for Human Spaceflight, 
basically indicated that uh, the uh, Sierra Nevada still had some issues with the TPS or the thermal protection system on the Dream Chaser. And uh, they weren't exactly too happy with, uh, with certain things. In fact, uh, Bill Gerstenmeier said the winged design of the Dream Chaser basically presents some interesting issues uh, that the other two uh, entries, uh, Boeing and SpaceX, do not have. So they're given basically, uh, they're given Sierra Nevada some time to work that out. Um, they were extraordinarily, NASA was extraordinarily impressed with, uh, with Boeing and uh, had, uh, saying that it had uh, a strong technical design and demonstrated extraordinarily well, quote, how heritage subsystems components would be integrated in, into the CST-100 design, close quote. However, uh, Bill Gerstenmeier said that the proposal most notably, notable shortcoming was a, uh, a lack of corporate financial commitment on Boeing's part, because apparently um, the, uh, a lot of the funding for the CST-100 is coming from the CCI Cap Award. The other issue uh, that they had was with, oddly enough, with Space Exploration Technologies, or SpaceX. They were very, very impressed, and they were saying that uh, uh, SpaceX provided, quote, the uh, earliest crewed demonstration flight under a credible schedule at the lowest development cost. Uh, but uh, Bill Gerstenmeier also added that he was rather concerned uh, that uh, SpaceX would not be able to uh, adapt the, uh, the cargo-only system uh, into a crew taxi as quickly as they say they can, meaning he doesn't think that they can convert from cargo to crew as fast as they, they think that they're posting that. Um, the other thing, too, uh, they did mention here, the article does mention here, is that um, ATK had the, uh, the Liberty uh, proposal, and uh, the, integrate, the problem there, uh, Bill Gerstenmeier said, is they couldn't really demonstrate very well how they were going to link these two heritage systems together, meaning the, uh, uh, the, the uh, upper stage from, uh, from Astrium, which is essentially the core stage for the Ariane 5, and uh, the uh, SRBs, or the, uh, or the solid rocket boosters from the shuttle. Uh, there just wasn't uh, a good degree of, uh, of demonstration on how they were going to do that safely. Um, uh, George Torres, who's uh, the spokesman for ATK, basically said Liberty's future is... Well, under examination, so I, I'm not too sure they're going to go ahead and continue that project or not. Uh, but it should at least we, we're we're taking a look inside and we're trying to see again what NASA's rationale was for for distributing uh, the awards the way they did. Yeah, I remember when they first announced CCI cap, we were talking about it, going, "Wait a minute, wait a minute." ATK got nothing. We we were slightly confused, but now that they've release some of the reasoning behind it, it makes a little bit more sense. The fact that basically it just didn't look like they were focusing on the right things. Uh, again, quoting Bill Gerstenmeier, he said basically, quote, the proposal lacked enough detail to determine if a safe crew transportation could be developed in a timely and cost-effective manner. So essentially, they weren't sure if it was going to be safe enough, and obviously safety is one of their number one concerns. And if you're not going to give them enough information, then they can't give you the money. Because, I mean, all the other companies, NASA sure has their concerns about some of them, like we were just talking about. But at least they gave them enough information that they could say, we are concerned and you should look at this. I know for a fact that the crew safety was something that uh, ATK was harping on, on big time. And they felt that they did have a safe concept. Uh, I think too, what was going on there was that they just <laughs> they just couldn't prove it, um, or could not prove it to NASA's NASA satisfaction. Or they're saying that you know you do a, you know prove to us that you can get a safe system together within the time allotted that we have. And I don't think. Perhaps that ATK's argument was compelling enough. I will say this too. I know I also saw a report too, uh, and this is also from Space News as well, uh, earlier last week, that um, uh, Astrium is looking at possibly upgrading or replacing the Ariane 5 as well. So I'll 
now Ariane 5 has been spectacularly reliable, but it hasn't been profitable. And I think, too, that that's, you know, I'm wondering, too, if since, since I believe ATK's Liberty Design uh, was dependent on the Astrium core stage, I'm wondering, too, if they went ahead and redesigned Ariane 5, would that have any implications for the Liberty? So, you know, again, I don't know. Um, I don't, as, as far as uh, Dream Chaser, yeah, it's definitely got some different challenges than uh, than Boeing or uh, or SpaceX. Personally, I would really like to see that one uh, succeed because it kind of you know harkens back to to the shuttle days. But it looks like again the capsules may prevail. What do you think? I think so. I mean, it unfortunately it's going back to you know more of an antiquated design, but at the same time an older design that works and i think that's the most important thing and like you're saying one of the biggest contenders is boeing with their cst 100 and in fact uh just a side note um orbiter processing facility 3 this week actually begins undergoing renovation to be used by boeing i mean the fact that nasa is letting them take the opf shows how much confidence they have in their system and i think boeing and spacex are going to be the two big capsule contenders yeah, I mean, it, it would be interesting to see who eventually, because I think now they're talking about only two providers, or accepting only two providers at this point. So I know that initially it was going to be three or three, possibly four, uh, but now I think it's down to only two, and um, that are vying for two contracts to launch cargo and crew. SpaceX has already got the the cargo contract. Uh, I think we they've paid for what about eight or NASA is going to be paying or should I say the U.S. taxpayer is going to be paying for what eight uh, eight Dragon flights and I think uh, uh, Ditto um, Orbital Sciences with the Cygnus which is their uh, their cargo uh, uh, vehicle I think they're also we're also uh, paying for about seven or eight flights there too no either eight or nine I I don't remember yeah, exactly yeah I mean, the the other thing too is I think SpaceX starts operational flights uh, next month the but, scheduled launches in October yes right so um, the question really is is how quickly they could convert the Dragon cargo vehicle into a crew vehicle and that still remains to be seen but uh, the fact know, that they're saying that they can do it in eight flights or so is pretty gutsy. Yeah, I mean, well, again, this is, uh, you know, Elon Musk at the tiller, so we'll just have to see uh, if uh, the magician can pull another one off again. I bet they'll do it. They've got the enthusiasm and the, uh, you know, the heart of the employees behind the company. Indeed, and we will find out, <laughs> hopefully within the next couple of years, of exactly who prevails and who's the one that we will be using to get things to the space station and to low Earth orbit. So, we've made one trip around the table, and let's ignite stage two of our engines and perform our burn, and let's go on to round two around the table. And I say let's burn the engines because we are actually going into space for this next story, in fact, to the International Space Station. On August 30th, two American astronauts performed the second spacewalk aboard the International Space Station. Suni Williams and Aki Hoshide went out and completed the third longest spacewalk in U.S. spaceflight history, lasting 8 hours and 17 minutes. It was originally only supposed to last 6 and a half hours, but they encountered some issues with the installation of a main bus switching unit. The problem was that there was possible misalignment and damaged threads where a bolt had to be placed. So, what did they do? They went out again on Wednesday and tried to fix it. Now, they used a very interesting tool, almost Apollo 13 style, to clean off the area so they could get the bolt to fit in. Do you know what that was? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's something I keep in my toolbox all the time for the same purpose. Uh, just a standard little tool, toothbrush uh, to go ahead and, and clear out some debris that was in the area there. And uh, lo and behold, it... In MacGyver fa fashion, it worked. Uh, it worked quite nicely. So uh, everybody kind of, you know, giggles and all this. I think even uh, Comedy Central UK had a story in about it. 
but uh, um, the you know you giggle all you want you know that this this multi-billion-dollar facility was uh, was fixed by by a you know a small toothbrush, but hey, you 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 use the tools that you got, and uh, it worked wonderfully. It is pretty amazing the tools that they used, um, besides the uh, a bolt tool, two of them, a small and a large one. They used a wire brush tool and what they called a toothbrush cleaner, in fact. So I think that's pretty amazing that they essentially used a wire brush tool and a toothbrush to clean out the area and to get the main bus switching unit installed on the space station. That That's pretty darn impressive. You know why they had to use something simple and basic like that to get the job done? <laughs> it's towards the end of the fiscal year and they didn't have budget to uh, send them the <laughs> real stuff. <laughs> Oh, oh political jokes. <laughs> oh, man, I could say something in there, but I'm not going to. And I'm sure lots of people in a lot of different walks of life can relate to making do and being creative and coming up with something out of the ordinary. Except this time it was done a few hundred miles up in space in microgravity with uh, nothing but molecular oxygen floating around you. And two, uh, another thing I should uh, I should observe is that Sunita Williams uh, went ahead and scored a, a record, if I'm not mistaken, right, Sawyer? Yes, indeed. She surpassed uh, former head of the astronaut office, Peggy Whitson, and in doing so, has the record for total cumulative spacewalk time by female astronaut with a total of 44 hours and two minutes of EVA time over six spacewalks. Pretty darn good. Yeah. And not too bad for a good old-fashioned ingenuity, too, on board the ISS. Yes, indeed. As we were saying, MacGyver would be very proud. Alrighty, then. Let's continue on around the table. And, Mark, it goes back to you, and I believe back to Earth. Yeah, back here on good old planet Earth, uh, I saw a press release from Friday, September 7th from the Kennedy Space Center. And it's one of the one of the things that's got to be a favorite when uh, when you get to hear about what folks are coming up with, how innovative they are. Well, this was about employee innovations and Kennedy Space Center is funding a dozen employee ideas to make some improvements at the Kennedy Space Center. The funding comes from something they're calling Kennedy Kickstart. It's an employee competition, and the uh, competition was held Thursday during this event called the First Innovation Expo. It highlighted employee work and showed how they can uh, make some changes to shape the future of the Kennedy Space Center and NASA. Sixteen employees gave a 90-second pitch of potential improvements that would cost less than $5,000 in equipment. The ideas range from 3D printing of a working robot hand to commissioning artists to recycle space shuttle hardware as art. Eight judges, including the Kennedy Space Center director, Bob Cabana, and senior management from organizations across the center selected 12 projects to fund immediately, and they're going to be complete within four to six months. And I'm going to ramble through some of these winning projects. They're going to work to publish mission audio on an internet radio station, providing a more consistent, inexpensive feed. They're going to purchase some smart surge protectors. Can't imagine why they'd need surge protectors at Kennedy with those <laughs> lightning strikes that just about uh, delayed uh, shuttle launches towards the end of the program there. But anyway, some smart surge protectors to save on energy expenses and fried computers. Um, <laughs> that's my note. They're going to commission artists to recycle spatial hardware as art into pieces that can be displayed across the center. They're going to study artificial gravity effects on hydroponics. They're going to study the benefits of a virtual control panel and enabling employees to shut off valves that do work remotely. Uh, encourage online collaboration, reduce travel, increase productivity. They're going to study planetary ice mining by downhole energy injection. I didn't know there was any ice in Florida other than my freezer. Study the ability to generate power uh, for the center through waste heat recovery, a 3D printing of the functional robotic hand, separation of water ice from regolith in vacuum by methods of melting, and a pneumatic conveyor for large volumes of regolith, which would reduce time and expense of studies and student programs such as lunabotics. 
And they've uh, the last one is a quick attach to a Humvee vehicle mounting interface for exploration payloads and excavation implements. So I think this is pretty cool. Um, employees are coming up with some ideas on their own. They found a way to do it for small amounts of money. They're they're working to improve world class ground systems and facilities, both for government and commercial users that are now part of the Kennedy Space Center. And I think this is pretty cool. It's good too, Mark, that they're talking to individuals that are, you know, playing with this kind of stuff and playing with this kind of equipment every day, and you know, are just you know, loaded with ideas on how to make the job a little better and how to how to work a little smarter. And it sounds to me like they're picking the right uh, the right brains, if you will, uh, for uh, trying to make life over at KSC a little better. Oh yeah, this is local talent, home field advantage. Couldn't have said that better. As a side note, I've got to interject this, and I, I probably have brought this up before. But when I transferred to my current duty station at Gainesville, Florida, a gentleman was retiring oh, maybe a week or so at most after I arrived. And he took me around to see some of the, uh, some of the sites, the facilities that I would be working at. And he had on a, uh, a hat. I can't describe it. Sort of a felt hat. I, I can't even think of what style to call it and it had a pin on it and the pin was a nasa pin and it turned out this is an faa technician that he worked for one year for nasa now at the time that i saw his hat and this nasa pin it bothered me that here's a man who had a career of 20 some maybe 30 years with the faa but what he had as a a memorable little item on his person was a NASA pen. And I think the NASA employees have really got something going for them. I work with a great bunch of people in the FAA and people that are proud of what we do. But uh, apparently he got a taste of something at NASA, probably during the early days of the space program, maybe in the 60s, that, uh, that stuck with him. And he was proud of that association. And of course, certainly that this will go into something we talk about here in a little bit. Uh, proud of the accomplishments that NASA had with uh, Apollo and, and our presence on the moon during that time. Alrighty then, so let's continue along now from America's space program to another space program. Gene, you'll take that one? Yes, sir. Um, I'm looking at a Times of India uh, article here dated uh, September 10th, which is today. Um, this is going ahead and letting us all know that uh, over the weekend on uh, Sunday at about uh, 9.51 a.m. local time in India, um, a, uh, their booster, the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle C-21, which stands about, uh, well, according to the article, about 44 meters tall and weighs about uh, 230 30 tons, uh, lofted into uh, into space, two satellites, uh, Spot 6, which is a French Earth observation satellite, and a, another uh, uh, satellite from Japan, a microsatellite. Um, this, it, it may not seem like a big deal, but uh, to the uh, Indian Space Research Organization, this was. This was their 100th launch and their 100th mission. And uh, that's quite a milestone for uh, for uh, for their space program, and uh, you know they've they've got uh, their eyes on the moon. Um, it looks like they're they're going to be shooting shooting the moon with uh, their next uh, their next probe. Uh, they do have some development issues with that, but it's not on their end. It's on Russia's end. Obviously, it's on Russia's end. This is a um, their lunar probe is essentially a uh, an Indian and Russian um, cooperative, but uh, for some reason or other, the the Russian end, which is the lander, they're they're still working working on that. Uh, but also, they have their eyes on Mars. They've uh, they're trying to see if the, it's a bit of a controversy in India right now. Uh, they're not too sure whether whether or not they should bankroll that. But the uh, the Indian Prime Minister. Um, seems to think that this is this is a big deal and this is a a key uh, a key thing for india to do uh, to quote uh, indian prime minister mahmoud singh he says quote questions are sometimes asked about whether a poor country like india can afford a space program and whether the funds spent on space exploration albeit modest uh, 
could be better utilized elsewhere. This misses the point that a nation's state of development is finally a product of its technological prowess, close quote. I keep on thinking, again, of a speech that Wayne Hill had written, and uh, we've, we've referenced it a few times here on this program, where he talks about the Ming Dynasty in China, uh, you know, that had such great, a great exploration program uh, themselves. They had a vast navy that went everywhere, that even uh, supposedly uh, had colonies here in, in the New World, just, just what, in what, what is present-day Rhode Island. Um, and they're, they're, they touched every part of the globe. And then, you know, the, the, the emperor passed away, and the entire effort took a turn with the new emperor. Uh, he fell under different, um, you know, different thoughts and so on. And the idea was, well, you know, what is out there for us? We're, we, you know, we're, chi- you know, we're China. We're the big power of the world. Everybody else is sort of inferior. So let's take care of problems here at home. So they went ahead and they destroyed basically the entire exploratory navy and stayed home. And lo and behold, things didn't work out too well for China after that, uh, that they didn't continue their expansion. That They basically looked inward and their culture kind of sort of fell apart and it didn't really... You know, really turn out the way that way things wanted. They really didn't turn out the way things wanted wanted uh, wanted them to. So I, I keep on thinking of the U.S. and we seem to be retreating, or are we? I don't know. You know, even with this commercial space program, are we really retreating or not? You know, um, to a lot of folks, we are. Uh, so are we've got a we're at a crossroads here. Are we going to let? India and, and other other nations kind of t- sort of take point while we look inward and you know sort of take care of what you know domestic problems and so on. If we wait for utopia, people are going to pass us by, and uh, we're not going to be a, a technological contributor anymore. So you know, again, there there's some there's some lessons here from uh, this 100th launch that we have to go ahead and and take a look at and and take a good long look at, at ourselves in a way. And I hope uh, hope we do that and we make the right decisions. Hmm, an interesting way for the U.S. to look at their space program by looking at the programs of some of the other countries who, whose name usually isn't tossed around. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, as as the Indian Prime Minister says, I mean, this is not you know we are considered quote a poor country, and yet we are launching satellites for the, for the French and the Japanese. You know, we could do that too. You know, the French and the and, and the Japanese have gone to uh, to India for that. So you know, we're we could theoretically be overtaken by a very unlikely source if we're not careful. All right, and it's time to move on to our final trip around the table. And this final trip around the table will not be dictated by us. The stories that we will talk about will be dictated by listeners by you with a bunch of listener emails that we received over the last couple of weeks. And thank you guys for sending these in, because, I mean, this is what we wanted. We wanted you guys to get involved with this show, and we're really glad that it's finally taking off. So, let's get things started with someone who hasn't sent us a letter before, and here we go. This is from, and again, I apologize if I mispronounce this. I know I tried to ask you about the pronunciation, but I'm going to do my best. And this letter comes from... Ian Bethune from the UK. Hi from the UK. Firstly, just to say I've been enjoying listening to the show for over a year now. The podcast comfortably fits into my commute each Thursday morning. But the main point of my email was to disagree with Mark's comment on episode 427 that Neil Armstrong's inspiration will be lost by the time we next set foot on the moon. While I share his pessimism about when that might be, although I still hold out hope it might be within my lifetime, I think I've got 50 or so years left in me yet, I think the big difference between Armstrong and the Apollo program, compared with someone like Columbus, who is just another page in the history books as you mentioned, is the amount which has been documented and recorded from Apollo since it took place in the age of television. In my own personal experience, despite being a child of the 80s and missing out on first-hand experience of the moon landings, 
Through reading astronaut biographies, documentaries like The Excellent from the Earth to the Moon, books such as A Man on the Moon, and even films like The Right Stuff, no matter what you make of the factual accuracy in some places, it is possible to get to know the astronauts and forge a genuine emotional connection with their stories. This, I think, makes a tangible difference between Neil Armstrong and other historical figures like Columbus or even Charles Lindbergh. And, as a result, whatever generation does eventually step back on the moon, I believe they will still be inspired by him in the same way as the current generation is. Keep up the good work. So, Mark, do you want to respond to that? I certainly do. And thank you, Ian, for your letter, for your comments, for the thought you put into that. And as far as disagreeing with my comment, oh boy, there's times I disagree with myself. I don't, you know, I stand beside myself and have an argument. Um, you know, I thought about that show after we recorded, and probably for the days and a week or so afterwards, I thought about some things that uh, I'll go ahead and try and communicate now and see if this makes sense. Um, first of all, my mood was somewhat uh, influenced by the fact that I was kind of bothered by the fact that we had lost Neil Armstrong. It kind of put me in a, in a grouchy position. I didn't like it. And I didn't like dwelling on the fact that we that he was gone, that we had lost him. I, I, w I was so focused and have been since on a really fun, lot of phenomenal things. If you go to Wikipedia and you, uh, and you do a, a, a search on Neil Armstrong, one of the things that you'll see on that page that comes up on Wikipedia is a picture of Neil Armstrong standing in front of the X-15 on the dry lake bed after a test flight. And I'm telling you what, that is one unique individual because not too many people flew the X-15 and not too many people were actually capable of handling it. But, um, you know, I, I think extremely highly of him. And you brought about a good point, Ian, uh, when you talk about um, it, it, today's, in this day, it's possible to get to know the astronauts and forge a excuse me, and forging a genuine emotional connection. That's absolutely true. And that's something that our modern communications, the Internet, and uh, the instant recovery of data from, from historical as well as uh, current day events uh, give us an advantage in, in keeping memories alive. Will his inspiration be lost by time? I don't know. There I'm going to do a comparison. Let's think back to the Wright brothers. Does anybody have their heart beat a little faster thinking about the Wright brothers on that beach in North Carolina in that first flight? I honestly don't. And I work for the FAA, and I ought to be excited about anything flying. But uh, what excites me is, is not the people from that long ago. It's from people that I relate to and, and that I know today. Um, I've worked with a lot of people over the years, which at this point, uh, let's see, I guess I've just passed 37 years at the federal government, and I've worked with a lot of phenomenal people. There was one technician I used to work with that when I would have a problem with a particular system, some of the other guys who would say, uh, hey, Mark, all you got to do is wait for Don to come in, and if he says, hey, what you doing, what's going on, you just kind of step back a little bit, and you tell him a, a little bit bit of this and that as to what you're trying to troubleshoot and uh, if you step back next thing you know he'll be standing in front of that piece of equipment and uh, you know the thought was that you'd have it made because you'd have an extremely sharp guy stepping in to to give you a hand and and it's things like that and it's it's the highlights of Neil Armstrong's career that are exciting and I guess I have to disagree with myself and say that I think it will last I think I mentioned that the general public isn't going to have that connection, and I really, unfortunately, don't think they will. But for, but for fans of history and fans of the space program, you're right. It, it's going to stick. It's not going to be quite as doom and gloom as I probably made it sound. And I would like to throw one encouraging thing that I also read recently. Uh, this was from a magazine called The Futurist, and something I just stumbled across uh, one time looking at uh, – magazines on the news rack and it says modern history has shown that anything human beings decide they want done can be done in 20 years if it does not violate the laws of nature the atom bomb was developed in four years from the time the decision was made to make it putting a man on the moon took eight years from the time the decision was made to do it 
So again, back at the beginning of that little statement, modern history has shown that anything human beings decide they want done can be done in 20 years. And, you know, that's encouraging. That's encouraging because that uh, puts it in that time frame that, Ian, you mentioned in your letter. I've got 50 50 years or so left in me. And, uh, yeah, I bet we will see some things. (laughs) Kali, it's going to take longer than we want, though, and that's the part that's kind of discouraging at times. So, Mark, you think based on what you're seeing, um, 16 years to Mars or what? (laughs) Just doing the math. Well, I don't think we want to go there yet. So no, sixteen years no. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that convenient number of twenty that I that I saw in the magazine article, and say that it'll be twenty years from when we decide because we've got so many things to solve in the meantime. Radiation in space, I mean even uh, Curiosity en route from Earth to Mars. Curiosity had a radiation detector on the deck that was getting radiation data in flight that gave uh, gave the the science folks some indication of what is what would the environment be like inside a spacecraft what would the what would the radiation level be would you have some shielding not a you know it it gives them some data and so there's so many problems to solve that i I don't think it's going to happen too quickly um i think we go out of there's a lot of exciting things ahead with with things that you've talked about with Dream Chaser, with the, the Boeing capsule, with SpaceX. There's a lot of exciting things that are going to happen that are going to keep us focused on the, on the subject, not necessarily on, a, on an exact goal, because that's the thing we've talked about before, whether we've actually got a goal right now. And I, I don't think the U.S. does. Oh, and one last thing. I remember reading this. Uh, couldn't tell you when, but in the last few years. But it was talking about the moon landings, and someone made this statement. They said, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, it wasn't them. It wasn't the U.S. It was us. And they were referring to the fact that the world, and perhaps that would be narrowed down somewhat and say the free world, but that community landed on the moon. We all did it. It wasn't just two men. It wasn't just the U.S. The world felt like... They all shared in an accomplishment. And um, golly, that brings up a whole other set of discussions and thinking. But I wonder if that'll happen again. Even though we have more collaborations and more things where countries are working together on projects, expensive projects, are we going to have that feeling of we did it, we did it? I don't know. I think we will. I think even if it's an international cooperative, I think we will. Because again, as you pointed out with Apollo 11, anybody with a television set or a radio or anything like that was sitting there. And I'm not just talking about here in the United States. It was all over the world, all over the globe. So I have a feeling if we go to Mars, and eventually we will, and it will be an international endeavor because of the, uh, the cost involved, I think there's going to be applauding, and it's going to be all over the planet. Yes, indeed. So, Ian, once again, thank you very much for writing into us. All right, now this next email comes once again from Rich Way, who was the one who originally began the Saturn V email thread. (laughs) Don't worry, Rich, we still love your emails here on the show. (laughs) Feel free to keep sending them, especially when they're not Saturn V related. (laughs) This one is really interesting. It doesn't necessarily have to do with the Saturn V boosters, thankfully not at all, but it does have to do with history. And while we're talking about the history and legacy of Neil Armstrong, I think this is appropriate to read as well. Rich says, Thanks again for reading the email. Again, surprised and pleased. Sorry if this line of discussion has sidetracked you folks in any way. Interjection? No, it has not. We appreciate the emails, and it made for quite a laugh and quite a conversation. Back to the letter. The subject of where history meets legend has fascinated me literally since my bike had training wheels and the opportunity to explore urban legends is just plain irresistible. In my 700-book library, Bleep Kindle, I often find that myth has a basis in fact, and fact often has a basis in myth. For example, if you read Homer's Troy, and Heinrich Scheilman digs up something pretty darn similar, 
You read Plato's Atlantis, and you find striking similarities to the Minoan civilization, including a flood by tidal wave. On the other hand, you research Admiral Yamamoto's supposed brag that Japan would dictate terms of peace in the American White House, and you find it was actually written in a strong anti-war letter to illustrate how impossible a war with the U.S. would be. But not everyone finds this research as fascinating as I. So if I have the opportunity to comment on a further podcast, rest assured it will be on another topic. In the meantime, I found a copy of Mining the Sky in the public library and will be checking it out shortly, which was the book we referenced last week. All the best, Rich Way. Rich, keep them coming. We love you. And again, that uh, uh, that whole thread was, was kind of interesting, too. I mean, admittedly, we kind of sort of went into uh, sort of a, a coast-to-coast type type environment with it but it was still a lot of fun and and it was a it was a fun roller coaster ride and no you didn't you didn't burden us at all it was kind of neat so on to the content of this email some of his examples of legacy and history what do you think of that it was funny he mentioned uh homer and I, that was the first thing i thought about when he was when he was discussing uh you know myth and and reality to some degree, yeah, he's right. I mean, some legends have basis in reality, and uh, I'm sure that as we grow, as we go on, our, there'll be some more legends uh, born at, even out of this generation, uh, maybe in a few hundred years as we're going along. I mean, even though the, the legend of uh, you know outlaws and things like that, we still talk about today. But uh, I'm sure that as we, we're probably even creating our own, our own legends, even as we go along, we just don't know it yet. Hope you'll excuse me if I have some fun uh, with the dictionary. Oh, by all means. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Not often used book anymore, so go ahead and crack it open. Uh, well, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open your eyes to something. Legend. Some of the definitions are pretty rich. Some of them are pretty simple and short, and you wonder, what have I missed? So I'm wondering what I missed, but the word legend, the, the uh, definition that st- kind of stuck with me close to what we're talking about, <laughs> but off in a different direction, it says, Legend, a wonderful story coming down from the past, but not verifiable by historical record, a myth, a fable. I also found some things that I think are more along the lines of, uh, of what we're talking about. I looked up hero and uh, in memory of Neil Armstrong and some of the people we've been talking about. Hero is a man of distinguished valor or enterprise in danger or fortitude in suffering, a prominent or central personage in any remarkable action or event, hence a great or illustrious person. And I think a prominent, central person in a remarkable event, a great, illustrious person. At the same time, we talked about Neil Armstrong as being humble. And uh, I saw that uh, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, they received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1969. And they received the Congressional Gold Medal with distinction in 2009 and uh, those aren't medals that are freely given sometimes you look at the people that have received them and you find figures from different uh, parts of our society and you wonder well well why them well it's because they stand out in a very unique way in a positive way one more definition valor strength of mind in regard to danger the quality which enables a man to encounter danger with firmness personal bravery, courage, prowess, and intrepidity. So, that's my two cents on the dictionary. All right, and with that, that just about brings this episode to its conclusion, but we have one more very important bit of housekeeping, and that is a very important date in Talking Space history. On September 9th, 2009, a new episode of a brand new show made it onto the internet with its whole listener base of 20 people and with three brand new people who hadn't done this before one man put out a note to some people saying i want to start a podcast who's in 
And two men and one woman later decided to join him. The man who proposed that is our very own Gene McCulka. The three who answered the call, Mark Ratterman, myself, and Gina Hurley. And together, finally in episode three, which was when I ended up taking over the editing job and the hosting job, we came up with the name. And from then on, we were the Talking Space Podcast. So we are celebrating three years of Talking Space, over 100 episodes, and over 20,000 listeners strong, thanks to you guys who download, as well as those of you who listen on astronomy.fm. And good Lord, we do appreciate it. Uh, I never in my wildest dreams thought we would get... Uh, we would get to uh, to go do this for three years, and it's the only reason why we're doing it is because you keep on listening. So as long as you keep listening and sending us feedback, which we dearly appreciate, we'll keep doing this. So again, thanks thanks to everybody out there for the support, and a huge thank you to the folks over at Astronomy FM for also their continued support. Thanks a lot. And you know, in spite of the uh, the the key idea that we're just trying to get the word out, holy cow, we're having a lot of fun. Uh, looking at the subjects that we look at, talking to the people that we get to talk to, and, and talking amongst ourselves. It really is a lot of fun. It is something that for the time and the, the work that it takes, especially for you, Sawyer, you do a lot of work in doing the editing on this, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. It, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we, uh, glad we do this. I'm glad that, uh, glad that it came up. I mean, shoot, if you would have told me, um, Back in 2009, that uh, we would be recording, essentially recording history um, from uh, live from the Kennedy Space Center at, uh, through SDS 135, and and having the opportunity to uh, to transmit that uh, moment in history to uh, to the world, um, I would have laughed. Uh, I mean that. Um, this has been one heck of a ride. The final three launches, in fact. That's correct. That's correct. We actually started this with uh, uh, with uh, Discovery, STS-133, 134, and 135. And we cr- pretty much chronicled their uh, those last three flights here. And uh, I thought we did a rather rather adequate job of that. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, I think we've done pretty good so far. I mean, again, covering those final three space shuttle launches, we covered, again, we were there for the end of an era. That That's... I think that speaks to how far we've come from those first episodes, which I've listened back to and cringe, to <laughs> where we are today. Yeah, I, the the big the big thing uh, with that is is we were able to bring uh, the individuals that go ahead and download these episodes every week to those venues and and bring those those experiences. Uh, to to the listeners, and uh, that's what we really, really try to do here. Um, and if it weren't for all you guys that download this again, I, <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't be doing this. And uh, a lot of personal time and a lot of personal treasure has been invested in this, and and we really do appreciate the support. And hopefully, we'll 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 keep it going for as long as we can. But um, again, thank. Thank you, all of you out there, for uh, for this for the uh, uh, the support over the past three years, and and we'll try to, to keep going and, and make this uh, even an even better program in the future. We do it because we love it, and we hope that you love it as well. And that's why sending us in those emails and everything, especially now, finally after three years, we are getting feedback, and this is what we've wanted. This is great. Again, reminders: if you want to send anything to us, whether it be something that you think we should mention on a show or a possible topic for a future show as we've been starting to receive, go ahead and send it to us. You can send us a text file or an mp3 with a question to mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. And as you hear, we may answer it on the show. As well, you can also tweet it to us as at talkingspace, which also gives you some space updates on things that we don't talk about on the show. And you can also like us on Facebook and ask us a question there at facebook.com slash talkingspace. Now, before we go, I should add some thank yous. Thank you to Russ Dale and Todd Cecilio for all the work that you guys have done on the show with some of the behind-the-scenes work, such as the opening music. And a big thank you to Michael Forrester and all of the amazing, amazing people over at astronomy.fm who for the last two years have been carrying us and have taken us beyond where we ever could have thought that we would be going to some of the best places in the known universe on the best astronomy network in the known universe, I might add. 
And, of course, thank you to all the amazing people who have ever been on the show, specifically you guys, Jean, Mark, and even though she's not with us here tonight, Gina. On that note, of course, thank you as well for your continued support over these last three years, and we hope you'll keep listening, because we're not done yet. So, we hope you will join us, in fact, next week when we pick it up again. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are, and thank you. Thank you.